Yes. Last time I did a lightning round, I got a paddle that said yes or no. Oh, oh, yeah. No, we're not that. This is not the Ellen Show. All right. This is. This, we we don't have that kind of production value here. We got this budget's really small. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Human Element, Kara's podcast about modern marketing. I am super excited today. Finally, I have Louisa Long, COO of Kara US, joining me. It's been too long. <laughs> I've been chasing you around, but you finally have shown up. Although Yay. I still owe you wine. We're doing this sober. Oh, yeah. Which we, is all wrong. Yeah, that's just wrong on so many levels. The next one, we're doing <laughs> true confession, you know, the full drunk human element. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your new role. You were just sort of announced in role a couple months ago. Tell us, you know, kind of what the COO role is and and all the parts that are in it. Firstly, I think COO role is the role that no one wants to do because <laughs> <laughs> generally it's people hidden under the stairs that have to make the operations work of the agency. Right. My definition of the COO role for Cara in the US is slightly different. When I first joined in a transformation role, it was all about understanding how we could build an agency for the future. So an agency for 2035, not an agency for 2020. Right. That means that we are much, much more systemized. It means that we have up-leveled our talent in a different way. It means that we're also much more data-driven, data-fueled in how we do the tasks that we do for clients. And so through that transformation in my role as COO, the way I see it is understanding how these different variables are changing the landscape of marketing and advertising services, making sure that our, our people feels empowered through new technologies that help them do the, their jobs better. But more importantly, I think it's taking the entire organization on a journey to say, hey, if this is where we're going to end up in 2035, what are the steps that we need to take in data analytics, in our day-to-day -day operations, in our approach in digital? For example, digital should be a language, it's not just a capability. Mm. It's something that we want to ensure that everybody in the agency speaks as a language. Right. Right. Automation is a huge part of that, especially in, you know, the more operational parts of our business, whether it's buying or billing or any of you know, anything in between. When you look at sort of automation impacts, what do you see as the as the most important things for us to be doing in that area? So I think automation is very broad because mm. I think everyone looks at automation as, oh, it means robots take over and we don't <laughs> need people. Right. The reality of it is automation actually requires people. Yeah. Right? You can't build automation without human input. And that's the fact. What, it does, what automation does do, however, is make people better. So if you think about your phone, right, in your pocket, the, the, the beauty of having the phone in your pocket is that you have a mini computer, an extension of AI of yourself that helps you get information quicker to get from places A to B, makes you faster as well. So that's really how we're thinking about automation, which is we're modulizing it, thinking of specific low value tasks that our people are spending hours and draining their time doing without actually focusing on strategic work. Right. But if we were to take those low-value tasks, what we get our people focused on is much more high-value output for our clients and actually happier in their jobs too because I'm pretty sure nobody wants to spend like 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. like working over tons of different spreadsheets when actually an automated report could do that or a robot could do that. Right. If you look over the next 12 months, are there sort of two or three milestones that you're looking at for you know, what transformation looks like for us in that time frame. Yeah, I mean, this is going to sound really boring, but I mean, bill pay <laughs> is... <laughs> well, exactly. But I mean, it, that's the kind of thing you got to have nailed down, right? Like yeah. it may be boring, but it's massively impactful. Oh, it is. I yeah. mean, you know, 
simple things like automating bill pay yep. to ensure that we are paying our bills on time and that we get paid on time so yep. that our people get paid on time, right? right? It sounds really simple, but actually it's still, I think in most organizations, I don't want to speak to others, but in most organizations, even I've worked across, it's still a very manual process. And yep. again, these are low value tasks that really we should be redeploying people into more high value strategic items. That's one piece. We also have an automation agenda as CARA and also as Densu Aegis Network, where we have identified everything from planning right through to media activation, right through to insights and bill pay, that we have want to modulize some of the, well, we want to modulize some of the tasks and automate that. So we're investing in that as a business. I don't want to say there's like two things that we think uh, that we have identified. I think there's a whole host of things that we're identifying across the entire media workflow and then picking off the ones, the low-hanging fruits that we know we can target very, very quickly, proving it, scaling it, and then exploring other areas that we can, again, seek to automate and optimize. Do we have clients that are sort of looking to us to sort of partner with them to drive parts of their automation agenda, even if it's around things like bill pay or whether it's accounts receivable or whether it's, you know, the way the way in which they deliver briefs and making this stuff up? Like, you know, workflow automation. Do we have clients that are sort of coming to us and saying, hey, can we partner on piloting in these spaces? So I have seen quite a few clients come to us and say, hey, what are you doing in automation in this? Yeah. Or actually, how are, you, how are you approaching automation in aggregate? Yep. And I would say every business has different challenges. So what we're solving for is not necessarily what the client is solving for. Mm -hmm. Different ecosystems for starts. I think well, how we're trying to help clients is giving them use cases of how we have been deploying uh, RPA and how we've been deploying bots and automation in our own personal agenda and yep. saying, well, how could you learn from that? But the reality of it is, and I think this is where, as a business, we're well positioned. We understand the media ecosystem. We understand media workflows. We are better suited to go in and consult to yep. work with them on what potentially their automation agenda could and would look like. Is less of a, can you borrow, beg, and steal what we're already doing? I think that there's, there's learning curves that we can share, but a lot of it has been has be down to what are you, what's your business transformation agenda and how can we help with it? If we have a client who says, you know, I'm going to take material elements of my DMP, DSP management, my programmatic agenda in-house, are there things that we know about, A, how that works and about how automating that in a, in a more intelligent way, you know, for us to provide a consultant level service around that is that are, are there opportunities for us even when clients are taking those things quote unquote in house and out of the agency so i think that is part of cara's core value proposition is our ability to be agile mm. and i think we're proving that with the recent onboarding of a brand new client right i think we're learning as we go along because new business models of how agency services clients in the future has to evolve and some clients want to take aspects in-house, whether it's to learn or whether it's to manage in-house. I don't see that as a long-term thing. I think I see that as a learning curve because clients feel that they've maybe been too far removed from media ecosystems and understanding how media operates because digital has come in and introduced a whole swath of different technologies. Yeah. It's become very complex very, very quickly. However, that said, I think we are best suited and best placed to help advise and consult on this because we have navigated all these different ecosystems and yeah. because we see it across the spectrum of clients that actually we can go in and say, well, there might be aspects that you want to insource, but the reality of it is we've learned from X, Y, and Z clients. By doing so, you might be impacting your analytics. You might be impacting your trafficking. You might be impacting your reporting. So our job really as a consultant is not to say no, but to present the risks and help our clients mitigate against that. That's a vastly kind of different mindset than maybe what people traditionally 
expect in the media agency space, quote unquote. How have you worked with your team to sort of say, hey, A, the business we're in is changing, and B, our methodology and approach has to be much more nimble to react to that. And C, we're almost going to be on model experiments, not just with client by client, but within single clients, there may be seven or eight different working model experiments. How do you kind of get them oriented to that? To be blunt, we basically <laughs> said the bus is going, you're right, either you on get the on bus it. or yeah. you're off the bus. You know, our new constant is change. Yeah. And it's not going to stop. And I think listening, a quality that we seem to underestimate, is actually the most critical part. Mm. How I'm working with with folks is to say, are we listening, actively listening to what our clients are asking for? Or are we just reacting to buzzwords that they might have heard at conferences? Mm. And so it's very critical to ensure that when clients are asking us questions, that we are asking the right 10 questions back to get down to what the root of the problem is. So it's, it's a very different approach, possibly, I think, in the past to yes, sir, yes, ma'am, whatever you know you ask, we yep. will deliver, to a much more proactive, well, what do you mean by that? And let's dig a bit deeper into what problem we're solving for. Because often we find that some of the problems that are actually being presented could be solved very easily or actually is not really critical or crucial to business outcomes that the client's looking to solve for either. So I think active listening and active questioning are two things that attitudinally working with the team, we're behaving differently in how we respond to requests coming in from clients. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Let's change gears a little bit. One of the key you know, issues that you face in a marketing organization is your own internal technology team. Mm-hmm. and how they do things, you know, what level of agility they have in both spirit and also methodology. Uh, and that obviously impacts the way they deploy a set of, you know, ad tech and martech partners for you. Do you see that clients have made a lot of progress on that? Have client technology organizations gotten better at working in an agile way, at working with partners, at being open to sort of a more open and interoperable system. Do you think that's happening or is it still really hard in a lot of big client organizations to get some of this stuff done? I think it depends on the maturity. So every client, you know, is at a different life stage of their life cycle in terms of understanding their tech and martech ecosystems. Most clients have identified that there already is a challenge and they're starting to ask questions to help solve for that. And they're coming to the agency for support on that. Would I say that most clients have a fully-fledged plan? No, I think that even within clients' marketing organizations, they have conflict between their own divisions itself, right? So does the CIO own the data or does the CMO own the data? Oh, the DMP, is that owned by the CMO? Is that owned by the CTO? And everyone's got a business analytics or business intelligence team. Our business is becoming more collaborative, realizing that, hey, we're deduplicating functions or we might be duplicating efforts. Yes. Are they getting better at coming together? I think they're on a journey. Mm. I, I wouldn't say no one's solving for the problem. I think everyone knows that there's a problem. How they're solving and how they're approaching it, that's still very different. Do the consultancies have an advantage in that space? Consultancies come with their own enterprise tech and they are remunerated on the basis that they sell technology. Yeah. They're not remunerated on the value they create for clients. Yeah. Whereas I think media agencies, the way we are remunerated, the way we're incentivized to ensure that we continue to deliver value is that we don't care what tech you're using. Yep. It's about value extraction. So I think the difference between what consultants are doing and how they're approaching it, I think they are truly trying to solve business problems for our clients. Absolutely. But the way in which they're approaching it is they're not really understanding clients' objectives and where they are in the life cycle 
doesn't mean that I can afford a Ferrari. I need to buy a Ferrari. Sometimes a Fiat 500 is just as well to get me from A to B. Yeah. And I think it's selling in the right solutions based on the business challenges clients are presenting as opposed to saying, no, you need a Ferrari every single time because you know, you're going to need a Formula One every single time. And it's not. It's not the case. Yeah. So I think we as agencies bring a different perspective, a more real perspective, I like to think. Because a lot of consultancies, having worked at one, would say, <laughs> oh, <are> you? <laughs> yeah, I know, would say, well, we're agnostic, right? We don't care what platform or piece of technology that you're using. My experience is that's not always really the case because almost all of them have massive partnerships. And I mean massive mm -hmm. partnerships with, with major players. Is there a conflict in that? Yeah. 100%. I mean, I'll, in, a, in a word, I'll, yes. I'll, I mean, I'll use the example of even pitching, right? Yeah. So in the world of pitching, EY does both auditing and it also does, it has office pitch support as well. Yep. That's a massive conflict in my mind, yeah. right? Tech companies is the same thing. So I'm going to help you assemble the MarTech ad tech, but when it comes to auditing the MarTech ad tech, oh, I'm going to do that for you too. So I'm going to mark my own homework effectively. Mm, interesting. So there is a reason, in, in agencies, there's a reason why we have third-party independent auditors yep. actually auditing us. That's like saying, hey, let's go instead of an auditing uh, division within Dentsu Aegis Network and, hey, Mr. Client, why don't you just pay us and then we'll audit our own homework to tell you how good or bad we are. Right. The, the, the other issue as well is that when you're paying sort of, you know, consultants hours to come in and help consult on your tech ecosystem, often we, we forget to include the people who are doing media activation. And it's critical that they're part of the conversation too. Because if they're not part of the conversation, you could buy the Ferrari again, but no one can drive it. Right. And we've seen that time and time again with these platforms, right? I mean, we've been, it's been a decade and a half of you buy the platform, everybody looks at each other and goes, what in the actual hell are we supposed to do with this thing? Yeah. You know, and there's one uh, poor person in the corner that knows how to use it. it yeah, that, that's happened time and time again. Let's talk a little bit about how you vet sort of hype versus reality in the tech space, because that, that's hard, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and while there are all kinds of exciting developments, there's all kinds of stuff that doesn't turn out to be factually always the case. Blockchain. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's start there because my next question is, you know, thing that you think is the most overrated or the most over in the tech space, are there a couple things that come to mind? You mentioned blockchain, so we can start yeah. there. Yeah, well, no, so so I, I when you talk about hyper-reality, when yeah. I look at things like blockchain, AI, and machine learning, you know, they are modules deployed within technology to help evolve its capabilities. So it's yes. about making what we already have today better. And I think when... Companies use buzzwords like, oh, we're AI and ML powered. Well, good for you. So is 10 other companies. They right. just don't use that as their selling point. The selling point should not be about what technology powers it, but more about what value it creates at the back sure. end and what efficiencies you're going to get as a result of having, having deployed this technology. So for hype versus reality, how we discern, especially in the, you know, the new world of buzzword tech effectively, is I think we need to deliver proof of concepts and it has to be iterative. And it's our responsibility being technology agnostic to ensure that we are testing these new technologies, but giving a discerning point of view back to our clients and to our people as well as to where we really think there's a realistic application of these tools versus a hype that gets our clients excited for a $50,000 budget. Yeah. In terms of the most overrated piece of technology in the last 10 years, I would say it's a DMP. It's a data management platform, right? Oh, so, you mean a database? Yeah. <laughs> what are you? What are you? Many ways we could call it. I think that now we've moved on so that nothing needs to sit on a server. 
Everything lives in the cloud. A lot of it is about building connections between the different data assets. And because of privacy, who wants to sit on that ton of data day in, day out and, and manage the security behind that? I think that where blockchain, and to go back to the hype of blockchain, the next iterative process of data sharing and, and cybersecurity, I think that's where data management, yep. not a platform, data management deployed in those sort of environments becomes much more critical and, and game-changing for our clients. So I think DMPs have been overrated because most people are only using 5 to 10% of the functionality. Yep. A bit like ad surfing, right? Yep. You, go, you only get out what you put in. But I think people haven't really played in that data space enough. So DMPs are great as training wheels to help you get comfortable with using data. But I think we've now moved on from that where actually the applications that sit on top of different data lakes, that means that we don't actually need a DMP moving forward. Do you think there is promise in the concept of using blockchain to drive more transparency in the distribution sort of publisher value exchange? One of the deployments you hear a lot about is, hey, we're going to take this and we're going to, you know, instead of you having 50 middlemen, we're going to eliminate that, collapse it down to one or two. We're going to, you know, dramatically improve your ability to deploy your budget to an actual outcome as opposed to all these middlemen take, you know, three cents along the journey. Do you believe that, that, that blockchain has a, an opportunity to do that? There is definitely opportunity, but the <laughs> challenge you run into is what we don't want to have is each organization having their own mini NASDAQ of how they trade with different publishers. Yep. Because the problem with blockchain is today, the, the examples that we've seen even in other industries is still siloed within their ecosystem and within their organization. So it's almost like creating different versions of how we trade, different versions of NASDAQ each time. Yep. So I do see the benefit. Do I see the sell sign leaning into this because they see some commercial benefit for themselves? Not really. Mm. And let's be very clear. You know, blockchain, whilst it will open up data assets and allows people to credibly see, okay, what does each, every single transaction look like? The industry has hedged itself on discrepancies. You know, tech companies as well as the sell side, they have hedged it on discrepancies. So I, I will be interested to see the next sort of CRO of a major media company saying, hey, I'm willing to lose that discrepancy that actually hits my bottom line every month. Yeah. No, I mean... That's... So there's no incentive, really, for them to, yep. to want to lean into it. Yep. But will it help solve, solve a problem? Yes. I think there needs to be a few more use cases before we see a scaled application. When you look at kind of the landscape of the next two or three years, are there developments that you are super excited for or you think hold the most promise? Be they platform-oriented, be they, you know, new methodology-based, be they a new partner? Is there, is there something where you're like, ooh, I, I think there may be something in that? Well, I think the phenomenon started with direct-to-consumer brands and mm -hmm. their use of first-party data in how they're speaking to customers. I think that our shift to people-based marketing and actually using insights to give us human understanding so we can deploy it in our media plans so that we can actually create a much more personalized experience for consumers in our targeted messaging, I think that ball has started rolling. I think where we're going to start to see in the next three years is a broader, more wider application against things like addressable TV and other uh, media formats too. I see that being accelerated and I'm truly excited because again, what, what we bring to the table that consultants don't is that human understanding combined with data and technology to really get value for our clients. Yeah. So I see that being deployed at scale in the next three years. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about brand safety and where you thought we were. 
As an industry, the coalitions that have been created, whether it's by the IAB or whether it's by the 4As and also TAG, you know, independent mm -hmm. groups out there, it has brought together different constituents, whether it's the agency holding companies, whether it's publishers, you know, they've come together to help try and solve and standardize what we qualify as brand safety and how we actually want to create you know, implications for people who breach that. So how we accredit companies and who we work with as well, who we buy from, ensuring that they adhere to these brand safety standards. So I think a lot of work has gotten to it. Has it got better? Yes. Could it be better? Absolutely. But it's a bit like playing whack-a-mole. For every one that you find, there's another one that pops up. Mm. And brand safety is a responsibility by all stakeholders, right, in this value chain. It is not just the agency. It's not just the media owner. It's not just the client. I think we all have a responsibility to how we manage brand safety. I think a lot of the onus has been placed on platforms and media companies to manage that on our behalf, and quite rightly so. But I think we also now culminate that with consumer privacy, because consumer privacy and brand safety together is what we as an industry have to manage for in the future. Obviously, you know, it's been a massive set of stories over the past year, year and a half, related to the big digital platforms around data usage and privacy, et cetera. In your perspective, are they making progress in this? Are they as serious as they need to be? Are they becoming more transparent? Obviously, Facebook had an event, I don't know, three or four weeks ago where they declared that, you know, it's all about your privacy or whatever they said. <laughs> uh, hey, look, I'll, I'll, I'll withhold my skepticism. <laughs> Again, is that an area where you think they're doing enough or is there a lot more to do? I think this is the tip of the iceberg. It mm. feels very reactionary, a lot of the announcements that have been made to consumer backlash and the combination of legislation. But I said this at the forays about a month ago, which is I do believe that these companies do need to be audited in how they're using data and how they're managing data. It's very easy to say, oh, we can pass legislation or we can, you know, break these companies up as uh, an article in the New York Times suggested a few weeks ago. But I think the reality of it is that they need greater accountability to the people and to legislators, they have a responsibility to educate legislators on how this data is being used and where it should be used. I think we can scoff at Congress and, and the FTC. And, and say, I do. <laughs> that they don't understand, but they don't know what they don't know. And no, of they course, don't. they wouldn't know how to ask the right questions. So yeah. I think that the responsibility is mm. of these companies to educate and to provide a bit more transparency to consumers and to businesses as to what and how this data is being managed and stored. Because even if I think, look at things like cookie opt-out process about 12 years ago where, you know, that was a massive issue about I'm being retargeted by ads everywhere. Yep. It's a horrible experience. I'm going to opt out of everything. The reality is the numbers of opt-out that we saw come through for the U.S. was single digit, sure. double digit in, in Europe and, and in Asia. It, it was, you know, fractional to what we thought the impact would be. The same thing with consumer privacy. So now Google's come out and Facebook's come out saying you've got better control. But do consumers know how to control yeah. it? And do they know what they have to then do with it? So I think from a statement standpoint, it's, a, it's the, the right step in the right direction, but much more needs to be done around consumer education and also government education as well. Last question before the lightning round. Why do you love this business? And I don't just mean the media business. I mean, why do you love being in the marketing services area to begin with? I like problem solving, mm. especially working in marketing and ad tech. There are always problems to be solved, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and I think there's no, nothing feels better than actually walking to a room and working with the team to figure out what the problem is and solving it and seeing a really happy and satisfied customer at the end of that process. Yeah. But along that journey, I get to have fun because I work with a bunch of really talented people who are really passionate 
about marketing and advertising services, not because you're doing marketing and advertising, because we're all consumers. Yeah. And we all want to have the same experience, which is we want personalized experience. We want people to understand who we are and, and sell us things that we actually want, not things that we don't want. So we can be part of that journey to create a much more seamless journey for consumers. Wouldn't that be wonderful? It would be. Speaking of passion, you're a, a, a passionate advocate and champion of gender diversity, of diversity overall, certainly within the agency, but also in the industry. As an industry, you know, a lot has been written about the progress we have not made I'd love your perspective on where you think we are in that journey and what kinds of things have to happen next. So I think diversity and inclusion as a definition has been interpreted in many different ways. I think the first two areas that DNI have sought to address is gender and ethnicity. But for me, diversity and inclusion is not just, you know, a tick box of categories, is actually looking at how are we diverse and inclusive as a business is a mindset. Right. So socioeconomic backgrounds also come to play mm -hmm. in terms of how we think about diversity. As a marketing services group, we speak to everybody in the United States of America, whether you are working in Starbucks right through to being a CEO of a FTSE 100 company. The fact is we need to be able to speak to all those different genres. And so our company has to be representative of all those different mindsets. So diversity and inclusion for me is, yes, gender is one part of it. Ethnicity is one part of it. Socioeconomics is one part of it. But behaviors are the is the big piece that we need to change, which is when you walk into a room, are you being an inclusive thinker? Mm. Are you being inclusive of other people's points of view and being respectful of it as well? Because you might not always agree with others, but it's actually a behavioral aspect where you can be inclusive that creates that innovation and collaboration. I don't mean this controversially, but there are, just talk about the United States for a second, there are underrepresented populations in our business that are not simply either gender or racially diverse. Yeah. You know, so your socioeconomic one is a great point. A lot of times those correlate to racial backgrounds, but we know, frankly, in the United States that there are broad swaths of uh, rural America, for example, of, you know, what we'd call third-tier county America that, that are not represented in our business in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. That's yet another kind of angle on this that I think is that I think is interesting. So your answer I thought was really good. Well, there's a lot of smart kids out there who can't afford to go to university and can't afford to pay for university. Yep. And last I checked, the minimum is a hundred grand at least to go through university. It's not cheap. It's not cheap. And I think that we need to be as as companies, and I think what we have started to do that is to be much more diverse in how we think about our recruitment policy, which I think is critical. Yeah. How do we create more opportunities in yep. other areas of, of the of the country? Louisa, you are at the lightning round. Woohoo! <laughs> I'm just glad I got a woohoo. That's good. You didn't throw your coffee or your tea, rather. My matcha latte. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Very quickly, favorite digital experience, not one of our own clients. So for me, it's all my airline apps, the United <laughs> Mobile app. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I live and die by that yes. because. We and I fly yep. so much. Yep. It keeps me on check. It lets me know where my next flights are. Yep. But I think the great thing about the app that I do love is that from the minute I board the plane, I can access the entertainment system straight away yes. from my phone. Yes. So for that 45 minutes of sitting on the runway, <laughs> I've got something to watch. you got something is, to watch. Which is much more, because yeah. I don't want to be whipping out my iPad. So actually, it's great that I've got it on my phone. It's, it keeps me updated when flight's delayed. It tells me when I need to be at the gate. It's like having an assistant with me without actually having my assistant with me. That is a ringing endorsement for the United app. 
best piece of content you've recently consumed? So it could be a movie, could be a book, could be a Netflix show, could be a broadcast show, podcast, anything. Thomas Friedman, Thank You for Being Late. That's mm. a book that I recently yep. read that yep. speaks to the intersection of globalization, technology, yep. and climate change as well. That really inspired me, and it also scared me at the same time. But it speaks to the transformation that the world is going through right now. Yep. Hence, I, I make the point about our new constant is change. We are going to be inefficient before we become efficient as a human race. And to grapple with that requires focus. So not resistance. And I think through inclusive thinking, taking people on a journey, getting them to see how all of these different constituents help us be better as a human race, not try and slow technology down, but manage technology in the appropriate way. And then intergenerationally understand what the benefits are to the different generations. I think that for me really inspired me. And I urge everybody to go and buy a copy. Best piece of career advice you've either given or received? Best piece of advice as you was from my mother, always be humble. Mm, I love that. Uh, because you never know who you're going to meet. Uh, you never know when that friend becomes a boss. You never know when somebody that works for you becomes somebody that, you know, would be part of your integral network as, you know, as you move along in your career. So I think always be humble and always try and look at things from other people's perspective through that humility. Mm. Because sometimes when somebody walks into a room and they're frustrated or they're trying to get a problem solved and all you see is anger, the reality is that I don't believe that anger comes from a bad place. I think anger comes from a place of nervousness and fear. If you look through the lens of humility and try and share people's perspective, it actually helps you along in life a bit better and it makes you a happier person too. I love that. Competitor you most admire? Michael Epstein. <laughs> uh, we're, we're just going to leave that in. We're going to leave that in. Um, thing people should know about you, but they don't. We need surprising Louisa facts. Oh, that I was an amateur boxer for 15 years. Now that is a fact I did not know. Now, yeah. how, how, how did that come about and what did that look like? And huh? So I started at 19. Like punching boxing. Yeah, yeah. yeah like okay. punching boxing. Right, okay. Yeah, so it actually started off as fitness. Yeah. So I had a personal trainer who also happened to be a rugby coach. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, initially I started it for fitness and a little bit of self-defense because yep. as a five foot five Chinese British woman, you know, I need to feel safe <laughs> and I need to be able to protect myself. So it started as that. And then I think as I got into the sport, like my coach introduced me to a couple of leagues uh, and then I used to sort of compete around the corner from my office in London, went to a couple of matches. Some didn't end up well. So I kind of stopped. Right. You know, not a good look with cauliflower ears going into yeah, the yeah, office. Yeah, yeah. So I stopped that. But I still box now. And I, I box with my trainer. Yep. And actually one of the goals I'm trying to set myself is eventually I'd love to compete in an MMA, MMA match. Really? Yeah. That's my goal. Wow. Mm. You so were, don't mess with me, Robert. Yeah, no, look, I, <laughs> let's be clear. I wasn't messing with you before, but now you've sealed the deal. There's no chance. I cannot thank you enough. You were fantastic, as I knew you would be. You have to come back. Will you do that? I will definitely come that back. That we're doing with a big bottle of red wine right Absolutely. in the middle. Absolutely. Pinot Noir, please. <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> I'll drink anything. Thank you so much. You all have survived another episode of The Human Element, and we will be back out to you really soon. Remember, in the meantime, you can find us anywhere you find your pods. Don't be afraid to give us a review or, God forbid, subscribe. Thanks so much, and we'll see you real soon. Bye-bye. Thank you.